0: leaders. What keeps you up at night? Welcome to The Sweet Spot, the podcast series that expands the traditional term of what a boss is to tackle some of the most important issues in business. From business as usual and growing your market to everyday leadership issues or handling one in 100 year events, we aim to provide ongoing inspiration and education for CEOs, founders, management, shareholders and leaders of every stripe the sweet spot is the future of work and business. Hi, I'm Tristram Clayton, and in this episode we talk with Simon Coley, the creative brain behind some of New Zealand's fastest-growing companies, including Power Shop, All Good and Karma Drinks. Simon describes how relevancy and purpose have been critical in seeing Karma Drinks grow from an Auckland workshop into a global brand. He discusses why giving back and staying ethical have helped rather than hinder his business success. Simon also talks about the importance of design and storytelling and how to survive in a COVID world. Simon Cowley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tristan. It is quite an incredible resume there. Um, We'll talk about that in depth, but there are those recurring themes I noticed, the the positive change and the visual storytelling seem to come through in all those different jobs and, and positions you've had. We'll talk about those. But first off, let's start towards the beginning. What was some of those defining initial influences? Was it something in your childhood, your education, who you are, or was it something in your early jobs that sort of set up that really interesting and varied career path?
1: Yeah, thanks, Tristram. Um, As a kid, I was lucky enough to grow up in a household that was frequently visited by my father's friends, a lot of whom were artists. And so I had this really interesting kind of world where it was totally acceptable to paint and draw and sculpt and perform and listen to opera, things that probably weren't the same experience as a lot of my peers. So it was never a problem for me to want to do that stuff because it seemed pretty normal. Um, Thankfully, also, my father had a group of friends who, one in particular, who invited me to be, well, asked probably and wanted some (laughs) labour, offered me a job uh, sweeping the floors of his printing press. So when I was in my early teens, I was working amongst printers and typographers and typesetters who all had this sort of old-school craft of putting you know pages together out of bits of material metal I was quite was fascinated by that and I think the the craft of doing that the the sort of um romance of being in one of those craft type places made made telling stories interesting to me and I think that there's something about not being too worried about working with I don't know creative things and I don't know that everyone has that privilege. So from that,
0: it sounds like a, quite a pure, I mean, the creativity, as you say, there was a strong, um, the strong, the biggest part of the influence from what you've just talked about there. How did that translate into some of those early roles? And not just the early ones, but those sort of mid-career ones with um, 42 Below, obviously. I and mean, even Powershop. it seems like quite a jump because I, I guess you were, yeah. telling, telling, you were telling stories, but they are they're quite different sorts of companies, those ones. And they're
1: very commercial. Endeavors, and I think the thing for me is that the first thing I found exciting in terms of wanting, you know, what uh, finding a job I could I could have when I grew up was the idea of being a graphic designer. So I studied that, and then as I did more of that, I, I found I was as interested in the products I was, uh, I, I guess, promoting, illustrating, you know, making attractive to people, as I was the the, you know, communicating them, and there was a sort of natural shift in the work that I was doing from you know, presenting this stuff from promoting it, from marketing it through visual communication to actually making the products. And I think in that, I was again, another great uh, encounter I had, um, you know, many years ago was to be asked to do some work for Greenpeace. And that's where I thought, you know, actually, you can make a bit of a difference if you get this right. You know, if you captivate people or capture their imaginations and show them that, you know, you can make a change just because you apply yourself to it, you can see things happening and that's pretty motivating.
0: Well, we'll talk a lot about um, that making the difference thing you just raised there, but tell us about you. So you've, you've, you've explained really clearly that jump of from the visual to actually taking a, a, a pride and interest in the product itself. Expand on that a little bit. How did you move from, say, vodka at 42 below and effectively electricity at PowerShop mm. into, which I think was your your first real thematic product that was mm. um, with All Good and Bananas? Mm. How did you get, what was the shift from those, those big companies into something like bananas.
1: Well, pre, the, you know, before I worked at Forty Two Below, I was working with um, kind of issues-based promote uh, advertising. Before I was working for with Jeff at Forty Two Below, I had had this experience of working with um, organisations that were campaigning, um, and I always found that sort of issues-based communications pretty fascinating. And one of the campaigns I worked on was to try and promote the um, continuation of a deal with the Windward Islands out of the UK for an exclusive arrangement to sell their bananas from the Caribbean in the UK, which contravened a lot of it current EU laws. And what they were trying to do is keep the deal because it supported all these these communities in the Windward Isles. And that was it was kind of interesting to see how you know, you, again, engaging with people to show them that there's a benefit from their purchase uh, that's beyond the the actual thing itself was pretty fascinating. You know, 42 wasn't that different. We're still trying to make people understand that this product is better because of where it comes from and that there's some intrinsic value in that and that it's, it's not just a rational kind of equation, like these are the constituents of this product and that's why you should buy it. It was going it's purer because it comes from a place that is like that. And I remember Jeff's great insight when he, that he told me about when he, when, when he started, thought that he'd get into the vodka business was if you've got uh, terrible weather like in Scandinavia or Russia <laughs> and very clean air, you probably have a right to make vodka because the, the kind of most important ingredient is clean water. And, you know, at the time we could easily argue we were as good as those countries at that.
0: So there's that focus on and quality and, and pure, just a better product than, than others that might be out there. And I guess Bananas took that to a whole new, new level. This is not only helping lo- local community, communities, but intrinsically it's a, it's a very healthy product. And of course you went the natural route, didn't you?
1: Yeah, and I think like that, there's an idea in that, that you know Pete will kind of... You know, if, if for something to be remembered, you need that sort of mental fish hook, the story or the idea or the thing that goes, oh, that makes sense. So the the story about you know Jeff thinking about what makes vodka great it's it's a pure about purity the thing for me when we started uh, looking at bringing bananas in from Samoa originally was you know where do they come from not many people know that you know and we did some vox pops on Queen Street in the early days of All Good just to to tease that question out to see what people thought we had from the supermarket you know I don't know oh I don't know you know Australia and the, you know, all of those things are answers, but there's not really a relationship between the consumer and the place they are and all the people that grow them. And that, that's where I thought the opportunity lay. We go, well, it's pretty important that you understand what you consume more so than ever. If you have the power to make a purchase and you understand that it's almost a vote, you know, with your money, what are you voting for?
0: That is a powerful story, but I guess the reality of um, importing organic bananas and making sure a fair return went back to the grower, um, trickier that it might sound perhaps?
1: Absolutely, and I think in the first two weeks we realised that we'd bitten off a lot. And it's interesting because this is a very, very vol- volatile business. Perishable goods, few people are in that game. And, and the ones that are have massive scale. Like real, beyond growing them, you know, beyond producing things that you can take to market, You know, the best food we can have has a shelf life. The longer it lasts, arguably, the less healthy it is for you. So when you've got something that you know can rot, it's good, it's nutritional, but it's also got a big challenge for you to get it from a place, especially if it's as far away as Samara or Ecuador, to your table. And that's the thing we underestimated and very quickly had to learn how to manage that whole supply chain. And you have managed because that business
0: is still going. That's been been going for quite some time now.
1: We've been pretty fortunate, our partners, Agrofair, who do the logistics and quality control, um, Turners and Growers, who do our distribution here and ripening, Mersk, the shipping agency, all of those people, organisations that help us get them from a farm to to a, to a supermarket, are committed to and you know share similar values to us. So I think a big part of making those things work is knowing who to work with. And I was
0: um, speaking to to friends about this interview. They all asked me, "Can we get bananas from the?" South Pacific, to help our Pacific neighbours. Something you investigated, tell us what was the result yes, so of that. So
1: that's where it all began. Chris Morrison, um, he and Matthew Morrison are the, the, and I are the three founders of All Good and consequently Karma Drinks. Uh, Chris had been in Samoa surfing and seen how much great fresh produce and delicious tropical produce, you know, bananas, papayas, mangoes, pineapples, the sort of thing, you, you know, is just so evocative of a place like Samoa. Were, were growing there but not getting to market, you know, just on the ground. And when he came back, he was kind of uh, really excited about this because he has relationships with these places, has been there many times, has, know, has friends who live and work in those places. Um, you know, he was talking to me about it and I went, well, you know, is it possible? Could we get it from there to here? It just seems to make so much sense to buy something that your neighbour, you know, metaphorically, literally, your neighbour grows. How do you make that work? And 20 years... 30 years earlier, Samoa's 20% of the Samoan rural economy was supported by banana sales to New Zealand. That changed when containerization, um, uh, the the, the shift from small fruit stores to supermarkets, the kind of consolidation of all of those distribution and supply chains uh, forced a lot of these smaller growing communities out of the market. You'd have to have scale to be able to make or div- deliver the product at the right price to these places. And one of the big problems is actually packing them so that they arrive at Goodnick and having systems for doing that. It's very hard to do that when you have a lot of essentially small farms that are like people's gardens, harvesting. So we started bringing them in, very confident that we could find a market for it, but we didn't know enough to make it work. We we've, It did prove that people wanted to buy them, but the big challenge for us was getting a good enough quality. What we did was dry them and make a sort of, you know, really delicious dried banana, kind of natural sweet almost, like fruit leather or dried apricots, and they're they're great. But it wasn't quite what we had imagined at the beginning, which was, you know, have an alternative to the bunch of bananas you buy, which is what led us on the, the journey of working with the cooperative we worked with in Ecuador, El Guabo, and learning how to work with them. And they were perhaps the biggest inspiration. You know, they had been through a similar thing that we'd seen the Samoan farmers experience, but 10 or 15 years earlier, and being unable to compete with large production that were kind of cornering these markets and exploiting them by, by signing con- or, or offering contracts to buy and then changing the price of those contracts just the day before harvest. And then, you know, they were, uh, they were forced to sell at less than it cost them to produce. And those sorts of things obviously irritated them, so they got together and went, well, why don't we just go direct to the, to the, to the supermarkets, and they got in touch with a cooperative in Swe- in Switzerland, who said, yes, if you can get a container to us, we'll give it a crack, and they've been sending them there ever since. So they were one of the first ever fair trade certified growing cooperatives, and through the support we've had from fair trade, we could we'd engage with them and started bringing them and then we had to figure out how to sell them but at least we knew we had a product we could sell
0: and as a product that's that's still selling you've you've won awards for the the quality of that that product and 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 some recent news about the um the extent to which the the screen is sustainable
1: well that's always been especially with chris who's you know been pioneering organic production and sustainability for a long time as the chair of um the sustainability network in new zealand and you know, it's it's kind of been a lifelong passion for him and, you know, something I completely are aligned with and, and matters too. So we, you know, one of the things that's happened recently um, is that, you know, when COVID happened, we we're sort of wondering what our, what we should do because <laughs> the sort of existential threat of climate change had been overtaken by a much more immediate one, which was, you know, how are we going to live through this? But weirdly, it gave us some time to think about how we could improve what we were doing. And we sort of leaned into that and We've always wanted to try and mediate or remediate the carbon that we know is created in the supply chain we're responsible for. The simplest way for us to do it at the moment is to know how much is being produced. So we've worked with ECOS to really figure that out. So now we understand where the liability for carbon that we're responsible for is coming from in the supply chain. So we can offset that, which is what we're doing to start with. There's two areas that we're really focusing on, one that we have no control over, which is shipping. That will be something that will improve if more people are interested in doing this. It's kind of, and legislation, you know, it's a sort of top-down, bottom-up approach, more consumption of things that support this kind of thinking and, you know, we need more products in market that don't have a carbon, don't produce carbon. It's too much of it being produced. So when it's
0: really tough like that, it's that's just a question of offsetting it through planting trees. You yeah, yeah. can't actually bring your carbon
1: well, you, down you, you, until outside. you change that system. Until transport is using you know res- sustainable fuel, it's hard. But it isn't that much. So it's a smaller percentage of the supply chain of, of our carbon footprint than say packaging. So cardboard boxes of which we use a lot have. A Higher count, so that's another thing we can do now we need to work with packaging organizations to figure out how to make that work better but but this is a kind of holistic view. We know what the cost is now we The start for us is to is to offset that and the the journey for us that everyone will need to go on is what else can we do and how do we re- reduce it as we go? Absolutely.
0: All right. Well, let, let's jump on to probably the, um, the brand that you're, you're best known for now, uh, Karma Drinks, including Karma Cola, of course. How did you go from bananas to fizzy drink?
1: Yeah, it's funny, that one, because it, it was, you know, we talk about this, the volatility of the banana market makes you think, I don't know, I think we're going to be able to live off this. It's, it's a great thing to do. It's, you know, really interesting to see that we could actually catalyse uh, a market for a kind of ethical banana but you need to be selling a lot of them to support all the other parts of that business. So, you know, we were thinking it's time to produce something else. All Good had been conceived to be a company that would produce lots of things. It would be like, you know, if we can find other foods and drinks that we know will meet these sort of criteria to be good for growers, good ultimately for the environment and good for consumers, then that's why we're calling ourselves All Good. How do we do it? So the banana thing happened because of that inspiration of Chris's And then, you know, my first encounter with Chris was when he was at uh, at Phoenix Organics and uh, I was at 42 Below and Chris was making a fantastic cola. And then we'd been, we had the the fortune of meeting Harriet Lamb, who was then the head of Fairtrade International. And Harriet came out to talk about bananas with some of the people we were working with here and a few schools. And we were asking her, like, is it possible we get hold of some Fairtrade cola because we'd like to make some. And she, she, she said, well, we don't, we don't certify any, but I know where it comes from and I can introduce you to someone. So she introduced us to Albert Tucker, who's now the chair of our Karma Foundation. He's a native of, native of Sierra Leone, and he was able to f- help us find some villages we could work with to get hold of cola. And that's where it really began, where we figured out, wow, these guys could really benefit from us selling some cola. So, this
0: is the original the cola from. nut that yeah. used to perhaps be in the other brands, but no longer. And this is where the whole cola concept comes from, is it? This yeah, nut. no,
1: well, it's, you know, it's a, it probably began in Italy. There was, a, I mean, from the research I've done, there was apparently some tonic, something, you know, some kind of elixir that had some cola in it. Cola is a stimulant. When you eat it, they chew it in, in Sierra Leone religiously and ritually it gives you energy. makes you talkative. You know, if you're uh, in a place like that, especially in the rainforest where you have to walk a lot, they carry it with them and chew on it while they walk. It sort of gives them some motivation to get to the next place and makes it a bit more interesting for them. But we kind of saw that that all those rituals that had been popularised in popular culture were kind of true. (laughs) You know, that Coke adds life, that uh, cola is a real thing. that we, I was kind of riffing on that thing. This is really interesting. We could actually flip that and make it real because we know these people would benefit from us selling stuff, especially if we can send the money back from the sale of the drinks. And that was the, that was the kind of big idea that they, this virtuous circle would be connected by connecting the consumers of these soft drinks to beneficiaries in West Africa.
0: And obviously, this ties in with that theme I, I briefly mentioned it right at the beginning. The, the importance of giving back. This is very much part of the the business model with Karma Drinks and Karma Cola. Is certain amount of profits go back to those villages that actually produce the, the the cola nut that is still in all your yeah. all your cola
1: drinks. Yeah, and it is. It's it's not an massive amount. You know, it's not like we have to ship can, containers of it. But the connection is very important. Um, it's a challenge for us now because we can't do that with every product we've got probably 20 different flavours and types of drinks we've got functional drinks now we've got other sorts of soft drinks but the the theme is the same that we would put a, a 1% of all of our revenue back into the foundation to support these people and the challenge we have now is to broaden the scope of that endeavor and what we're doing what the foundation are looking at is we've got eight villages in Sierra Leone that are really that we've seen tangible change in like you know people growing up through some of the things we've been supporting them doing you know last week I discovered a woman called Hawa who's was started on a scholarship that the foundation had enabled her to study with in 2016 has now graduated and been accepted first kid that's come through these programs to go to university so that's like a milestone for us knowing that that it's working.
0: A lot of companies have foundations of one sort or other or mm. say they give back to the community. In your case, this sounds very genuine. You've been to West Africa yourself, haven't you? Yeah. Why is it so important for you to not just give back but to give back genuinely and, and truthfully and transparently?
1: Well, one of it's just the selfishness that I have because I quite like going there. Like, you know, this is I couldn't do this unless I got the chance. You know, it's motivating enough knowing that, Somehow there's a connection and it gives me an excuse to travel. Not at the moment, but hopefully again. Uh, but the other thing is that if you're not authentic, you really haven't got anything to tell. And if you can't tell that story, you can't sell it. So, you know, we could probably put a sticker that shows that we are supportive of a number of different, and you know, foundations or whatever... And it's not hard to do. It's really in the ether now. You know, being a conscious consumer kind of means that you've got to, as a company, selling to the, that cohort that you, you're you helping more than just taking money. Um, for us, if we, if we can't... I mean, the, this is kind of, it's kind of a Kiwi thing too. It's like a DIY NGO that we've set up. We've kind of gone, there's a connection here. There isn't a Fairtrade certificate, cert- certified ingredient. We need the ingredient. What will we do? And... I think one of the benefits for us has been not being too, um, what do you call it, sort of prejudiced by what we've done in the past. Like like a lot of people working in development have a have a theory of change that they apply to the sort of development they're doing. We've been very careful to admit that we really don't know and that we've asked the people we work with what they think would be beneficial and set up a system of doing it that Albert's been central to and made work really well. That's the magic in this now because because we didn't know, we didn't um, superimpose our values on the communities we work with. Anti-colonialism, if you like, it's going, we were really, it's, in, in simple terms, we're exploiting them. We're going, you guys are going to help us sell some drinks because we want people to see that you're being supported by this, their purchase. So what do we need to do for you to make it true? And they've come back to us and said, look, there's a lot of children here that aren't getting educated. We need help with that. There's roofs that are leaking, there's water that's not getting to people, there's rice shortages, security of food supply. So we've gone, great. Now you pitch to us how you're going to fix it, because we can't come in and do it. There's only a few of us. And we're not, we don't want to be, we don't want to create a dependency. We'd rather you own the outcome. So if we work that way, then it's yours. Like if, if we disappear, you've still got it.
0: How about measuring the impact? Obviously, this was a big a big theme that sort of, I think it came to the fore last year. You had um, a lot of the good work, um, philanthropy work, uh, wanting people wanting to be able to measure it. Um, Former Prime Minister Bill English actually set up something called the Impact Lab. Yeah. And it was, it's a way of measuring the impact at philanthropy, which mm. effectively this is, is having. H- have you gone down that route? Are you actively impact, uh, measuring the impact?
1: We are, but this is, again, it's like understanding our carbon liability Data is really helpful, but it's got to – you've got to see inputs and outputs. And, the, you know, that's what I'm becoming a bit obsessed with. We go, our outputs at the moment are people that have been empowered by these programmes. So if we take a really binary approach to it, like how many kids have been educated, we've got numbers for that. We've got the number of bridges that have been built. We've got the number of rice hullas that have been set up in villages uh, meet community meeting houses that have been built, teachers that have been trained. Uh, we've even taught community leaders to negotiate for themselves so we don't have to go in there and help them negotiate with the government. A bunch of these things have happened. But what motivates all of them is that if we were to leave that individual or that community, they would be able to carry on. And that's that's a really intangible impact. But but from our perspective, and we're really wrestling with this at the moment, is We don't spend that much money there. You know, we're not that big. If you compare us to something like Veldhunger Hill or Oxfam or, you know, a, a large organised NGO, we're just a couple of people trying to operate here with a reasonably good idea about what happens and what we've been able to achieve. But we're a bit more like a kind of minimum viable product and agile. We're kind of going, what do we try? Oh, that worked. Let's keep doing that. That didn't. Let's stop it. So we've got, and that's because we have this great relationship with the people on the ground there. We have a guy called Michael Salou who basically spends all his time going around the villages checking what's happening, you know, connecting with them and seeing if the projects that he's been responsible for supporting are working. And that's one of the things that happens on a much more informal way but with really good outcomes because he's able to see when we need to encourage someone to, 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 to do something a bit more or recognise that there's some support that we need to offer that isn't there. You know, it's kind of like just being there is makes the most difference.
0: One of the other big um, aspects of, of karma, along with that giving back, is is the um the creative uh, side that you have brought to it obviously as you described in your earlier answers um that that creative side was where you where you initially started from tell us how how important that that the role of that's been in karma where i think we can all imagine some of those amazing campaigns the the artwork the design mm-hmm. the many and varied collaborations you've done mm-hmm. um, it's, it's a big part of it tell us tell us about that that side of the business
1: that's another selfish thing for me i love doing it and I think you know, there's a lot of energy in the in the team to to want to do more of that. One of the most, since I've been stepping back a bit lately, seeing new characters emerge from the, the product development process. Seeing we've just launched a, a raspberry lemonade called Raza, and I had very little to do with that. So it was quite it was quite inspiring for me to see that a team are coming up with stuff and making it happen, and that there's that whatever that is, the spirit of doing that is is something that's become. It's a terrible word, but scalable or repeatable or able to be continued. Yeah.
0: I guess there is a common theme there with some of the, the uh, philanthropy work with West Africa. I mean, you, you, it was given a given a rod rather than a fish, wasn't it? Obviously, should you, you describe that as should you leave, it would carry on, and it mm. seems to be the same with some of the design work. You've still step, been able to step back, but that's still carried on that side of it as well. Yeah, I
1: think there's enough of that sort of embedded in the way we work for it to have momentum. But one of the really interesting things that Albert said to me the other day, having taken some of the people we work with the last trip he made to Sierra Leone, he said, when they came back, a couple of them mentioned to him and said, the way we work here is so impressive. Can we do more of that in the way we work? You know, and this was in London, and it, you could the same could be applied here in Auckland. Like there is a kind of, um, and I think it's to do with Albert's st- style and, and it, what the experience he's had in working with developing rural economies, with you know helping farmers become owners of their of these sorts of programs is is empowerment. Like, what does it take for someone to learn enough to be able to just carry on on their own? All right, well, because you mentioned
0: it there, you mentioned London, UK. Um, let's talk about three years ago, roughly, um, I think you and your family upsticks and went to London, UK. Tell us about that move. Obviously, it was associated with a period of a big growth mm. for karma, mm. um, and you, you moved over there to take advantage of, I guess, taking on taking this product a, to
1: Europe. Well, you know, 10 times the size. It was the place that a lot of our investors wanted us to work more in. We have a, you know, it's a bigger market and in some ways the idea of selling into it with products that are purposeful like this has um, even more opportunity because of the size of the market but also because it's so multicultural. So many more people understand the kind of varied things that we do and and how valuable they can be. And we'd had great feedback from the people we work with over there. So we always thought that would be the next kind of move. And it was, we'd been in the UK since 2014. Um, And we'd sort of reached a point where we knew that our growth there would outgrow here. So we needed to make sure we grew well. Few hiccups, but it had, you know, through the first couple of years we were there, the growth really went as we'd expected it to. Um, and then we found we were sort of hitting some, the edge of our capability that, you know, we're really good at selling in, into, and this is a kind of Kiwi thing. We knew a lot of people in hospitality through the, you know, through the people we worked with. So, you know, getting into restaurant chains and coffee chains and, you know, places where you knew there was willing, um, I don't know, people who work in those, in those cafes who are excited about selling these products and saw value in it. That you could engage with was fantastic and you know because of that we had probably 80 to 90 percent of our sales came from those sorts of outlets so when COVID 19 struck that's when we started seeing a huge drop in sales
0: right because you in these retailers rather than the, the and then shops sales. and supermarkets
1: yeah. <laughs> so we we'd shied away from supermarkets we were trying to work there we still have we still sell through Ocado and Waitrose. We've got our own D2C service now going that's been very good, that's lifted uh, sales quite quickly. But we had not really nailed that mainstream sale because, you know, frankly, you've got to be a very cheap product to sell in bulk in a supermarket. And it's a bit hard to tell the story that we're talking about at the moment in the time you've got it in a in
0: Sainsbury's and we haven't mentioned too much but we can't forget your your product is organic right and you are giving back a certain amount to the community
1: and if you think about it we tax ourselves through a fair trade license fee organic premium our own one percent to the foundation plus you know anything else that gets us a high quality product so it's very hard for us to compress those margins without challenging our values and we're still going through this kind of but a soul search, and going, what well, you know, how do we do this in a way that makes the product accessible in mainstream markets, and also delivers our promise?
0: Well, we'll, we'll, we'll touch yeah. on that towards the end. There, we're sort of looking forward. It sounds like there's, I guess, you're hunting at new products and things right there. Um, but let, but just before we do that, let's just go back to COVID, which obviously you just yeah. moved up to this. So obviously, you've been doing pretty well across the Europe, which, which is amazing to think that head office in Greyland, mm. Auckland, and here you are challenging one of the biggest companies in the world, Coca-Cola, Amatel, in Europe, right? Mm. Uh, this huge market, extraordinary success, but then COVID, tell us about the impact of that and and did you have to pivot or how did you survive?
1: So we're still surviving. Um, so one thing happened and, you know, this time last year, we would have just uh, signed the contract for a new CEO, a guy called Ben Dando, who was ready to start and We'd searched for a while for someone who had, who could complement these skills. You know, realizing we got to the edge of the capability of the organization, we really need someone to take us forward. Ben fit that bill really great. So he started in, I think the beginning of February and within two weeks COVID was a problem. And very soon after that, we went into lockdown. So he had gone from, you know, the promise of this amazing new job you know, has he'd basically be gone, and he's he's he has a fantastic track record in working with purpose-driven brands and consumer goods, and is very good at it and very committed to the to, to our mission, to our purpose, and was so excited about starting. But he, you know, had to really kind of rethink everything on in that second week, and go, wow, we've got a a significant problem because we've watched ninety percent of our sales drop. Um, so that meant. Uh, Shedding overhead, you know, unfortunately and and really awful that we had to see some people go. We had to outsource some of our capabilities. We had to look at wherever we could save money. We have, you know, went to our best customers and asked them, you know, how we could help them better when they were being shut down as well looked at ways of making sure we could still sell through for takeaways and make sure people still had the experience of our product while they were stuck at home, tried to be as helpful as possible. And again, we weren't so worried about the business as much as, you know, what's our role in a pandemic in a city or a country like this when we're basically a fizzy drink? What do we do? So that was good because, you know, you've got to lean into your values and think, well, you know, we're here for a reason. We can't not behave like we intend to. You know, how do we support um, NHS workers? Can we give them some product? Can we, you know, and not just because we want to make good of a of a bad situation for marketing, just because we genuinely we've got a lot of stock now, we better give some away. Now, what are we going to do with it? How are we going to be able to respond to this? How do we make good of it? Now, we've we've struggled through. We've done pretty well. We we went from you know a pretty steep dive in the in our revenue line to it coming back up again through summer to things opening up up a bit and realizing where we needed to be to be robust enough and that resilience is, you know, there's weirdly a silver lining with being um, whacked by such a significant kind of problem and that's that you figure out what you need. <laughs> and I think commercially we're in much better shape than we were, we're not, you know, we, we're, we're all we thought is how long is this going to last and what do we need to be able to come out the other side? And I think we're in a good place. But, you know, I can't speak too soon because even, in you know, as we speak, the worst fatalities from COVID are hitting the UK in the last few days. So, you know, it's uncertain what's going to happen. But we know that um, we have a really strong, loyal consumer base supporting us. We've figured out how to sell directly to many of them who are at home and we've got a really great business in New Zealand, Australia and Asia that's supporting that. So, you know, generally we're in good shape, but we just need to be mindful of what's coming up. You know.
0: And it's it sounds like you that, that clear sense of purpose you, you mentioned earlier, that did help guide you through and you feel that you, you stay true to that?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean we what we do, you know, the first thing that Albert and I was thinking, so do we have the same amount of funds? to apply to the foundation for the next year or two, because we didn't want to stop anything. So this is a real irony. When Ebola hit Sierra Leone, the first thing we did, or Albert did, was call them, was get in touch with the people in the eight villages we worked with and say, what can we do? You you guys are in trouble, how do we help you? And this was like six months after we'd first been there. And they came back and said, don't change anything. (laughs) And it was interesting because they've been through this before. They'd had uh, programs for development from large NGOs that had just stopped, and that what I think what they were saying is carry on because we don't want to have another thing that came along and then disappeared. So we did, and then we said, look, we do want to be able to provide. We've got funds we can divert to help with dealing with your, you know, with Ebola. So we set up some programs with them. They led them uh, around education, sensitization, you know, hygiene and protection. So that worked pretty well. Um, and then the irony is that when it hit us, they rang us and said, can we help you? <laughs> Which is kind of brilliant and sad, you know. <laughs> you know, we're going through that and these people are as interested in us for obvious reasons, you know, and, and not just because we're in commercial partnership because they care that, you know we're all okay it sounds like you have lived the
0: never never waste a good crisis um, which is usually used in quite cynical ways but in fact you you've managed to stay true to that 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 motto but in a positive way Uh, you've used this crisis to sharpen up your processes look at your systems look at your ethos and and come through it pretty well obviously the 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 sort of reassessment of the business saw you and your family come back to New Zealand as it has seen a lot of New Zealanders come back. Have you you sort of passed on some of the, the lessons and learned and some of the threats to your business in your previous answer? Have you got, can you expand that out to, um, to this return of Kiwis coming back and the the, the the pandemic world. Anything there that expands beyond your business and the way you, the, the way you see yeah. New Zealand positioned to perhaps take advantage of the situation we now found ourselves in?
1: Well, I think, you know, it was always interesting seeing, like, again, this time last year, we were living in North London. We were watching, um, well, a little bit later than now, but we were watching how New Zealand was responding to something in sharp contrast to how it was being handled in other parts of the world. And feeling a kind of sense of pride that it was possible to get compliance around, uh, you know, changes in behaviour that would protect the whole community quite quickly. The the thing that I always recognised is that I would sit in the apartment we were in and look out the window and see an estate that had 400 odd apartments all sharing the same access, you know, lifts and stairways and thinking, you know, there's probably three or f- well, maybe 10 different languages spoken in there. You know, there's so many different cultures that we've got to contend with to get compliance for something like this. It's really hard. So the contrast is, is kind of unfathomable. You know, you go, you know, it feels like, again, the Ebola thing in, in, in Sierra Leone, the big challenge there, you know that this is, from a Western perspective, it's a communicable disease if you touch someone and you've got it they're likely to get it you know it's it's waterborne it's um it's not quite as infectious as say covid and the the result the the outcome is pretty much devastating it's very hard to catch it and not and survive sorry you know in the scheme of things covid is much more successful <laughs> because it's spread further but it's not as immediately as devastating. It's still obviously tragic. So um, just thinking about that and going, how do you really respond to this? Like, you know, it does take a kind of war footing. Everyone has to be prepared to make a sacrifice. You're not going out. You know, you're going to behave in a certain way and it's really hard to get that happening. Now, New Zealand have provided a template for doing it well and I think it's undoubtedly a good way to do it. Seeing that seeing us from afar as a culture that are capable of doing that has been a a great way to see our culture and to see what' people are capable of here, and I think that will will hold us in good stead. I think we shouldn't be um how do you say overly satisfied about that I think it's, you know it's it's not over yet. <laughs> But I think realising that we have the ability to do that is pretty strong, and we should take some solace from that and keep thinking about why we, what makes us able to do that. And the difference is, like, the difference is really simple. You could probably call anyone in New Zealand if you put your mind to it. Someone you know might have the number of the person you're trying to get to. It's a few degrees of separation. Doing that anywhere else in the world is really hard.
0: You've spoken about, um, I mean, obviously, as you, as you... Accepted that obviously our distance has been has been a bit of an advantage there. We have managed it well, but we've had a few things on our side as well. Without mm-hmm. that density of what you could see out of the the back of your London North London mm-hmm. apartment, but obviously when it comes to business, you know we all know about the tyranny of distance and how especially for uh, you know some a physical product a consumable product that that makes things really really hard. I mean obviously in the digital world mm-hmm. that's breaking down to some degree if you're in those. In, that, mm. in those fields. You haven't been, yet you have somehow managed to make it worse. Do you see in this COVID world or post-COVID world, the tyranny of distance breaking down to some degree? Or what are your thoughts looking towards the future and New Zealand's place in it?
1: Well, you know, personally, in terms of uh, distance and proximity to making decisions or being connected to people, I had a long call with our CEO Ben this morning. It felt like he was in the next room. We have a strong enough relationship to be able to have that kind of dialogue. That's pretty strong. That's pretty great. Um, I think many people working in business here have got better at that, and it's just a necessity now. We are used to, like, shortening that distance pretty significantly through just getting on with it. I think the atoms you're shifting are a problem. Like, we've had some of the worst freight problems we've ever had at the moment because everyone wants everything to happen immediately, and you know, having the protocols to save lives on. In shipping companies in on on wharves around the world you know in these distribution businesses everything everything's been made harder you know there's more friction there's more people you have to have separate shifts to have a full warehouse working the whole system of shifting food and drink and everything has this huge weight to it now and the outcome of that is that you just don't get this kind of service you expect now we've had that problem with all good with our we Import an oat milk from Sweden, which we'd love to be able to sell more of, but we can't get enough of it because we've had the sort of freight challenges. Now we've fixed them, but we're not going to be without those for a while. So we've just got to accept that there's either we get better at doing this. You know, there's going kind to of system improvements that shipping and warehousing and logistics. We just got to get better and better at it and protect people. Um, And that will will always be the tension. We communicate really well because we've got all this great technology, but it's only so... You you can only shift a box of goods so quickly. There's a limit, you know. Moore's law doesn't apply to to logistics and shipping,
0: yeah. Now you mentioned it a couple of times then and just then another product, obviously another thing your, your company's been very strong with it is um, adapting um, your products and, and, and creatively coming up with new ones. What Tell us about the future. What How do you see that playing out when it comes to new products? And I mean, I guess it's, this might've been part of your normal mm. business operations or it might be in response to COVID to some degree, but uh, are, you, are you expecting to branch out? Is that a part of the strategy to keep cool. things moving along?
1: Well, one of the most exciting things we've been doing, and this is pre COVID, I remember again, you know, December 2019, we were signing off on artwork for some oat milk that we were going to be making. And, you know, that's been in the market for about a year now and it's going really well. Um,
0: I'm going to ask why oat milk?
1: Well, it's interesting because we, as all good, um, you know, we had one product, bananas, and we kept thinking, uh, you know, what else can we do? And one of the things we really wanted to do was like a, an organic um, breakfast, you know, a, a, a meal supplement. Like bananas are a really good key ingredient for that. Most smoothies you have have bananas in them. What else could we add to it? And when you think about it, if you're going to be offering nutrition, you know, for kids who's, who are in a hurry, whose parents want to give them a drink, or, you know, for, for you when you're too busy to, you know, bananas are great. You peel them, you eat them, they hold themselves, they're really good energy, they're the ultimate snack, Right. See what else is in that category? And we thought, well, maybe smoothies work, maybe a kind of, but to do that, it needs to have some nutrition. And to do that, we need protein that we don't get out of a banana. Where do we get that from? Where do we get that kind of fibre and things that make something um, a more balanced meal? And we, we were thinking coconut milk, oat milk. And then in the oat milk thing, we thought, well, that's, you know, there's obviously growth in plant-based milks. There's a lot more interest for health reasons you know that no lactose um there's a lot more movement in vegan diets even if it's not f- for flexitarian you know what i mean people that, w- that would prefer to have eat less meat you know eat more plants shift their diet towards one that was healthier and and more sustainable over overall so we thought this really fits our ethos how do we do it And we were lucky to be, we know some other people in Sweden we were working with who said, oh, we're going to introduce you to some guys that know how to do this. So our network that we've sort of grown over the years helped us find a way of doing this. And now we're going, this is tremendous. Like, what a great thing to be able to do. Land use with oat milk is so much more beneficial. Less carbon, less water. You know, it's generally a really good way to get food out of the ground. (laughs) So we're looking at that and thinking this is another avenue for us and it's pretty exciting.
0: And I guess it also gets away from the, it's another non-sugar based, I mean, there's probably sugar in it, but a non-sugar based fizzy drink, is that that an important part or consideration? Well, they're two
1: separate companies. So Karma Drinks is unashamedly selling soft drinks. We think, you know, that's great. We have sugar free drinks, we have drinks with sugar, we just want people to be able to enjoy that refreshment and make the choice about how they consume it and what it's in it. Um, and that, you know, the the, the oat milk is, is a different company. It's good who, you know, like the bananas, similar benefit, similar relationship. There's a sort of a blur because we've seen people doing similar things, but I really felt, it felt to us that Good was a better brand to bring the oat milk out under because it's... We're basically in supermarkets with that. You know, people go into a supermarket, they see our bananas. It made sense that they'd see the oat milk as well, and that the connection would work. You know.
0: So, at this point in this, it was um, you've come through COVID to some degree. Uh, I think you you sound pretty confident that you've seen seen the worst of that. Even though, by all means, overseas it's still carrying on. Some new products there. What what is what does success look? Like, for you personally, with all your different hats on, what does success look like for you in this at this time?
1: Um, you know, in a small way, I get a lot of satisfaction out of seeing those things just out there. You know, like, I love seeing those boxes of oat milk in cafes and think, wow, since someone's buying it, someone's consuming
0: it. they cafes, are they good for flat whites?
1: Yeah, they're very good for flat whites. Thank <laughs> yeah. you for the opportunity to have yeah. that and, you know, every good cafe you'll find right. they have oh. our all-good oat milk. But also... You know, it's getting that news of that kid in uh, Boma called Hawa, you know, that, it's undeniably great to go, oh, that worked. Now, I'd like other things out of it. You know, I'd like the businesses to be profitable so they're sustainable. We're still struggling with karma drinks to make that work, but it will, you know. All good is in good shape. It's going to, you know, we're selling a lot of bananas now. It's fantastic. So seeing that, the, that these endeavours have momentum is great satisfaction.
0: Nice spot to end it up. Simon Collie. thank you so much for talking to you. All your details are put at the end of the podcast, but thanks for, thanks for talking to us.
1: Thanks, Tris. It's really great to talk to you too.
0: We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Please like, review or share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you'd like to follow us, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn under Alexander PR or follow the links in the show notes below. Until next time, thank you for listening.